Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Courtney, this month marks a very sad and um, troubling time that we are going to be memorializing and remembering. George Floyd died at dusk on Memorial Day, May 2020, outside the Cup Foods grocery store at East 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in South Minneapolis. His death triggered an outpouring of reactions around the globe. Today, we'll explore the impact his death had on both you and I and others. And specifically, we're going to be examining how we have changed over the last year as a result of this significant turning point in American history. Our podcast, as our listeners know, is aimed at explaining and exposing systemic racism in America. And unfortunately, no other institution in this country illustrates systemic racism better than policing and the criminal justice system. George Floyd's murder brought it into sharp focus razor sharp focus in carol it seems like yesterday but also so long ago but george floyd's death at the hands of police as well as what i like to call kicking off the summer of social justice during a pandemic no less will definitely be one of those i remember exactly where i was when it happened moments so listeners this is going to be one of those very special episodes if you remember those old tv shows where it's like this is a very special episode this is going to be a very special why are they so angry episodes where both of us get personal and share some very poignant and powerful stories about where we were and how we felt um when we learned about and saw the murder of george floyd as well as getting remarks and stories and reactionary feelings from our listening audience and our Facebook group as well. That's that's what we're all about this go round. So let's first talk about some of the immediate reactions to George Floyd's death back in 2020. So on June 13th, 2020, the BBC News published an article titled 10 Things That Have Changed Since His Death. Now that was, that article came out pretty soon after the the murder um, uh, of George Floyd. And so some of these things, they, I consider them almost knee-jerk reactions, almost performative. Some of them are not going on anymore, um, but at least there was a reaction. So let, let's talk talk a little bit about them. First of all, there were global tributes and protests. 
uh, people were protesting around the globe with one mass message, and it was a pretty clear one, Black Lives Matter. People marched in the past and when other Black people have been killed by police, but this time it's it felt different. Um, there were demonstrations in all 50 U.S. states, including in places like Anna, which is a small village in Illinois, uh, which some people describe as one of the most racist places on the planet. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that tells you something. Things were different. So cities in 50 countries also held demonstrations. We also saw statues being taken down in the UK and the US, statues and monuments of people with links to, uh, to uh, slavery were being toppled by demonstrators. For example, in Bristol, the statue of a 17th century slave trader, Edward Colston was dumped in the harbor. Uh, now it's since been fished out and put in a museum. Uh, something else we saw is it, uh, right away after George Floyd's death was companies standing in solidarity, solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And some of the biggest brands were very quick to pledge their support to that movement. Um, it'd be interesting to go back and see where they stand today a year later. Uh, of course, uh, back in June, police officers who were involved were actually charged for the murder. Derek Chir uh, Chauvin was charged uh, and he was uh, actually, he was charged initially with manslaughter. And then later on, we know that he was uh, charged with uh, uh, three total charges. And then there were three other former officers who were charged with aiding and abetting the murder. And, uh, you know, other high profile cases where black men died in the custody of police, um, they, some of those have led to some convictions as well. Now, police departments since that time, and according to the BBC back in June of 2020, said that some of the police departments were making changes. For example, uh, the Minneapolis City Council forced the police department to ban chokeholds and neck restraints. And they also ban unannounced police raids known as no-knock warrants that have been scrapped in Louisville where Breonna Taylor died. Uh, something else that, that sprang up during this time right after the murder was the call for defunding the police. And um, this was something protesters wanted to do. They wanted to um, take the money that was being given to police and not completely close down police departments, but redirect that money. Uh, for example, New York City's Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio said he would divert money from the city's police department to social services. Um, in June of 2020, we also saw a lot of donating to charities and bailing out of protesters. Uh, the George Floyd Memorial Fund was established and millions of donations uh, were also made to other causes related to racism. Something else that we saw that the BBC reported about, and that was more people speaking out about the everyday racism and discrimination that they face. People becoming more open and willing to share uh, negative things that have, have happened to them. Another instance, uh, as a result, uh, immediately as a result of the uh, uh, G George Floyd murder was Blackout Tuesday. On Tuesday, June the 2nd, uh, a series of black tiles were posted across social media as part of a pro uh, protest called Blackout Tuesday. And its intention was to blackout usual activity and take the time to learn about the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, something else we saw that happened right away was street names were changed. Uh, black Lives Matter Plaza uh, was the name of the street in Washington, D.C., leading up to the White House, ironically, right in front of the White House, where a particular 
45th president was resigning, uh, the mayor in DC changed the name because she wasn't happy with the way the current, that president at the time reacted to the protest. And uh, the mayor of New York uh, said that a street in each borough would be named Black Lives Matter. And then the media, you know, we did a show about, we did an episode about television and motion pictures, and we saw a little change there in June of 2020. There were programs removed from streaming platforms. Uh, there were TV shows that were considered racially insensitive or inappropriate characters uh, were removed from streaming services. Um, and so basically we saw some very quick, some of them knee-jerk reactions to the killing of George Floyd in immediately after the killing of George Floyd in 2020. That was a lot of changes. And like you said, they were a lot of knee-jerk changes, a lot of reactionary changes, but change nonetheless. Even in my hometown, our hometown, the small city of Johnstown, PA, in their own little way, put out that they were standing up against racism. So on their main street, they put the words, end racism now. Now, there were some other changes as well, and some of these weren't the best kind. People, as we began to talk and learn and, and express about racism and systemic racism, a lot of people got to share their true feelings about how they really feel about Black people, Black issues, and the existence of racism and systemic racism. And that caused a lot of heated dialogue. But isn't it funny, Aunt Carol? Isn't it not even funny? Isn't it amazing how all this started with a short viral video. Well, that is amazing. Social media has had an incredible impact. And were it not for the quick thinking of a young woman, we may never have heard of George Floyd and the erroneous medical examiner's report that his death was not a murder. That would have probably been the way things would have ended. So as usual, Courtney, you have a story. So tell us about the person who brought this insidious incident to light. I feel like I'm reporting history as it happens. Unlike my other stories that happened hundreds of years ago, this just happened last year. But 16-year-old Darnella Frazier probably had no idea that a simple trip to the store with her nine-year-old cousin would turn her into not only a historical figure, but in some people's eyes, an actual civil rights hero. Now, for those who are not familiar with the name Darnella Frazier, you are very familiar with her camera footage. It is her cell phone footage that showed the over 10-minute public murder of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin. Oh, a public execution, basically. Pretty much a, a lynching, a, mm. a reverse lynching, pretty much. So now you see, without Darnella's bravery, we wouldn't even know George Floyd's name. Maybe it only would have gone far, you know, as far as Minneapolis in that initial erroneous police report or medical examiner's report that described it as man dies after medical incident during police interaction. Hmm. Boy, that is an understatement. A big understatement. It said that Floyd physically resisted and the officers in their police reports made no mention of the prolonged 
restraint and it wasn't a restraint a man's knee was on another man's neck let's just be honest about that now angela harrelson uh george floyd's aunt lauded frazier's bravery um during an interview with cnn it she said it doesn't really surprise me that much with police cover-ups because they've always done that especially towards black and brown people harrelson said the sad thing is if it hadn't been for that 17-year-old girl, Darnella, it would have just been another Black man that was killed by the police. It would have been his own fault. And they would have said, oh, it was drugs. Oh, it was this. And we would have never known the story. We, have, we wouldn't be talking about that today. Well, she, that aunt was exactly right. She captured that information perfectly. We're only talking about it because of Darnella's video. Now, Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker Michael Moore wrote in a tweet that Frazier changed the world, adding in, no film in our time has been more important than yours, speaking directly to Darnella herself via Twitter. Journalist Anne-Marie Lipnitsky called it one of the most important civil rights documents in a generation. You know, Courtney, it reminds me of when um, John F. Kennedy was killed and the Zabruder film became the center of that murder. And had it been had it not been for a innocent bystander capturing on film and an amazing point in history that changed just about everything in this country, just like the George Floyd video, um, things things had a way of of being. I guess, dictated by whether or not the video existed. And in this case, it did. Now, although Darnella is receiving acknowledgement that she and it, she rightfully deserves, it was not always the case. Now, in the early days of Like I Dubbed, the Summer of Social Justice, Darnella was receiving threats. And I'm sure you think you know who was sending her threats. Yes, the fringe racist groups and some police groups, but it was actually her peers and other African-Americans on social media saying, well, why didn't you just jump in? That wouldn't have been me. Me, if I would have been there, I would have done da, da 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 or this, this, and that, not realizing this was a 16-year-old girl who bravely filmed a murder. And I, surrounded by four police officers. Well, surround- one police officer put it with his knee on a neck, the neck of a man, and three others watching. Three other watch others watching. And there were men walking down the street. There were adult, as we learned from the trial, there were first responders begging to help, but she left the camera running she did not stop and there are people that i personally know who put up crazy memes you know if you see me doing this and she answered properly when she said well what was i supposed to do you know when people say you know if you see someone beating my son jump in she could have physically been hurt herself or arrested or killed so she did the right thing now this history of filming the police uh, attacking African-Americans goes all the way back to 1992. And it's an activity that has never been safe. It started with a man that you probably don't know his name either. And I'm going to share that with you, George Holiday. George Holiday was woken in the middle of the night in 1992 and he grabbed his Sony Handycam 
and filmed four white police officers beating Rodney King. Now, the phones we have now are way better resolution than that Sony Handycam. But I remember, and to this day, I can't even watch the Rodney King because I remember being 10 and seeing that happen. But it started with him. And there's a history of people who film these things and film the police that continue to be threatened. But that video of Rodney King was shared with a local TV station. And that uh, local TV station, by airing it, sparked national and global outrage. Now, we all know how the Rodney King verdict came about. But that's what started that brave history of people not looking away and standing by and filming the police committing crimes against Black and brown people. Yep. I remember that film very well. And you're right. It, the, the, fortunately, today, the technology is so much better. But there was no doubt in my mind and most of the people around the country what was going on when they saw that video that Mr. Holiday made of the Rodney King beating. Now, I hope that all of us are moved by the bravery of Darnella Frazier. She has won a civil rights award that was uh, given to her by, by, by Spike Lee. And I hope it stirs up all of us to safely confront and bear witness to injustice when we see it. I look forward to seeing Darnella Frazier's name in my children's and grandchildren's history books going forward. And I think you will, Courtney. Uh, what's interesting, of course, is that that video was used in Derek Chauvin's trial. And as horrible as it was and still is to witness it and video it, it was something that had to be used as evidence. And Darnella was a brave soul, Courtney. I know I'd never have had the wherewithal or courage to do what she did. It's amazing, surrounded by police officers witnessing a murder, and she kept her head about her and still took the time to focus in and video the last moments of a human being. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk about some of our listeners' responses to George Floyd's death one year later. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, why are they so angry, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, Courtney, let's continue with exploring the impact of George Floyd's death, not only nationally and internationally and personally as well. Now, earlier, Courtney, you said you remember exactly what you were doing the moment you heard about George Floyd's murder. What went through your mind then? Well, 2020 had already been crazy, 
And (laughs) (laughs) I love the way you put that. It had already been crazy. And my husband was a first responder. So I was rallying behind him and his other co-workers and all first responders. We were all worried. And he always said, well, we're all in this together. What happened to us all being in it together? At that time in 2020, we were all in it together. Yep. The pandemic just hit spared none. Well, I remember getting on Facebook and, you know, scrolling through and it was like a video and I'm like, oh, it's another interaction where somebody, a police shoot somebody black and I skipped it, but it kept coming up. And then I sat and I watched George Floyd's murder on Facebook. Mm. And instead of my routine sadness and apathy, like, oh, another black person got shot by the police. Okay. Um, I got really, really angry. Not that any of the other shootings or murders or anything were any less painful, but being able to be sitting still in the pandemic and actually realizing this keeps happening and it's been happening for four centuries. It's 400. It just keeps happening. And I got so angry. And that was the first time ever. I just, I got mad really really mad because at that moment my husband's like I'm gonna go take a run and he put his hood up and I said do not go outside do not go outside and I was just angry and upset and of course it I'm not gonna lie it resulted in some heated debates and me some unfriend and unfriending people who I thought that I knew Mm-mm. and when I saw the things that they were saying that were untrue that were about African-American people. And I would ask them and their answer would be like, well, I don't mean black people like you. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, and the response to someone was the police don't know that I'm your safe black person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can't carry you around to say she's the safe one. And they just didn't get it. So a lot of people got unfriended. A lot of people got blocked. A lot of people got some choice words, not going to lie. But as we all know, anger often is a mask for fear. And that's what it was. I was afraid for my dad, who is a jovial, happy man who loves law enforcement. I was worried for my husband, who is a big teddy bear to me, but in a hoodie with a freshly shaved head with his headphones in. He looks like a suspect. My husband and my father and my uncle, as much as I love them and I know them to their core, they always fit the description. George Floyd was an uncle, a dad, a brother, a nephew. Yeah. Every time, all of those. And every time I look at every man in my family, no matter what age, even my brother-in-law, who's 14, he immediately fits the subject. Happy-go-lucky kid. I was instantly afraid. I can understand that the fear of harm, the knowledge that at any time you could step out, male or female, and be confronted by the very people that are supposed to protect us, the police. So how are you feeling today, Courtney, one year later? What have, what have you been doing to cope with the situation? That immediate reaction, that's not unusual because that's one of the first stages of grief. Well, I am doing it right now. 
Ah. The, the why are they so angry podcast which started as a facebook group with wonderful reading materials actually it started as a post a list of books from you and some movies from me and doing the podcast has helped me channel those sad angry scared feelings into a positive place of power that will enact change no matter how big or small i'm not letting the flame of george floyd go out with me also disconnecting from media and social media i don't want to become desensitized like i was i don't want it to take george floyd to be oh this is just another person so disconnecting and connecting with friends, family, and faith, friends of all races, family of all races, and making sure I'm checking in with them. We get in, inundated with negative images and opinions, so we have to make sure that we stay positive and enjoy life while we can. But in Carol, what about you? What did you do when you heard the news or saw the footage? Well, you know, Courtney, uh, this may be a bit long, so I'm going to try to tie it up with a neat bow as quickly as I can. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned anger. And one of the things that um, I have thought about uh, since uh, the year ago that this happened, as I've been watching my friends and myself and others, you know, I've actually seen the the five stages of, of um, grief happen here. Denial first, anger uh, bargaining, uh, depression, acceptance. Um, I think I've gone through all five of those stages. And when I say acceptance, I'm at the acceptance stage in the sense that I've accepted that what has happened and what has been happening to Black African Americans as a result of police brutality, I've accepted that that is a thing of that's going on in this country, but I am not going to accept disconnecting from it and not being willing to do something about it. So I may accept that this is the way things are in this country, but I am going to fight against it. Um, so as I said, this may be a little bit long, but in May of 2020, I just like you, I was shocked. I, I mean, I was in denial when I, I heard about and saw the murder. I Before I actually saw it on 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 uh, Facebook, I kept hearing people telling me, you know, the, uh, a police officer has actually murdered a man on, on, on video, that it's all over the social media platforms. And I just thought, what? I can't believe this. Um, but then when I saw the video, I couldn't even watch it through the end. All I could do was think, what can I do about this? So as you know, I like to garden. And my first response was to dedicate an area in the garden as what I call, first I called it the Memorial to George Floyd. And I, I got out, I'm from that era of Black Panthers and the Black Panther Party and so on. So I got out a palette, one of those old uh, palettes that you move things around on. And I painted it red, black, and green in the colors of the liberation. And um, I surrounded it with plants and I meditated and I thought about what had happened to, to George Floyd. And I knew that it was was it, I had to do something else, but that was my first tangible thing I could do. Protesting now, with art. That's right. Protesting with art through art. And that, and that's what uh, Black African-Americans have done for years. We've had to have our voice. We, we put our voice into our art. Now, 
Of course, like you said, Facebook was full of comments about the murder. So I thought I could contribute to the conversation in some way, but I wasn't sure how. But before we got in, get into that, here's a little background. About 20 years ago, your uncle and I started collecting books uh, about systemic racism in America. I think you know that well, since I've tried to force <laughs> a long time ago. And now that I'm reading you. them. That's right. That is right. Now, after reading about the struggles of Black African-Americans uh, in, in systemic racism, I began to wonder if uh, there were other institutions outside of education, which is where I first started reading about it and getting my own education. Uh, so we started to build a personal library and that library showed that systemic racism is everywhere in this country and it's in housing, it's in politics, healthcare, business, it's everywhere. And so I came to the conclusion, well, maybe I could share that bibliography with folks on Facebook to help them get a better understanding about how a murder like we witnessed could happen in this country. So I put up a post and it just said, if you wanna know how America got to the place it's in today, read these books. And I included the list of books. And uh, a friend of mine asked if I was going to do a book study on the books and, and then a few others joined in asking the same thing. And I kind of chuckled about it and I thought, oh, I don't know how to do a book study online, but. The more I was asked, the more I thought, well, maybe I should. And then I asked you and you said, yeah, and Carol, you need to do a book study. And that led to creating the private Why Are They So Angry Facebook group. And then the next thing I knew, we had a public Facebook group, an Instagram feed, a Twitter handle, a podcast, a website, and even an online course, all in the space of about three months. So I refused to be reactionary. I said, we got to get in, we got to do something. And, and my thing is, I'm an educator, let's educate. So that's how we got where we are today. And we're all the better for it. <laughs> I hope so. I recall the flurry of activity very well. Our whole family got together in our little family text group. And I remember my husband saying, you're always in that group. I'm like, I'm doing something because I can't sit here and be mad because I know me and have one bad episode at the Walmart and I will be on the news. So I have to do something. And that is that leads to why we call the podcast why are they so angry people ask us that all the time so can you give us the story aunt carol of why we named the group why are they so angry well people ask that question all the time they ask it and say well why do you name your podcast why are they so angry so here's the scoop Back in the late 60s and the early 60s, that's when I was, uh, or back in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, when I was in high school, there was, you know, the rioting and racial discontent going on in America. And I remember my classmates asking me, white classmates, of course, not my black, black African-American classmates, well, why are y'all so angry? Why are they so angry? Meaning black African-Americans. They're burning down their own neighborhoods. They're hurting themselves. We even hear that same question today. Whites say Black African-Americans can live wherever they want. They can vote. They can go to any school they want. There's even a, been a Black African-American president. What's the problem? Well, let me tell you, even at the height of the protest over George Floyd's murder that resulted in some violence and rioting, people were also quick to decry the destruction, saying that it hurt the cause. Why are you so behaving so angrily? So the issue is many white people don't have a clue 
that systemic racism is what embroils the anger among Black African-Americans. They don't even know what systemic racism is. It's that nebulous, unseen web of systems of power that interweave patterns, procedures, practices, and policies operating within social institutions to penalize, disadvantage, and exploit individuals who are members of non-white racial ethnic groups. In other words, Black African-Americans have been treated badly since they first came to this continent. Uh, systemic racism is the glue that holds the inequality in American society together. And that's why we are so angry because we are being disabused by the very system in which we live. So basically, Courtney, why are they so angry refers to Black African-Americans who have been angry, as your husband says, since 1619. Very true. <laughs> brought to this continent. One of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite writers, James Baldwin, pretty much sums up the title. And he said, quote, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. You know what? That quote actually speaks to how I felt at the beginning of starting this process. I didn't know what to do. I knew I was mad. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that I do know. So taking on systemic racism means taking on a deep culturally ingrained practices as well as policies built up over decades. And like we said, going back as far as 1619, when uh, the enslaved were brought here from Africa. And you hear people say, well, I don't believe that. That's not true because it's ingrained. It's like a stain in your carpet. No matter how much you scrub, it's still down to the padding, down to the weaving, even down to the wood. You're so right. even if you clean it out on the surface, oh, well, I like everybody and black kids go to our school and there was a black, but down in the wood grain, deep, 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 it's mm -hmm. still there. It is. It is. It's like if you took that ultraviolet light that finds, you know, the blood stains, even mm -hmm. though they, the murderer thinks they've scrubbed it away, it is still there. And most people don't even realize the web of lies and misinformation about America they've been living in. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. So we're kind of like, you know, systemic racism, CSI. We're here with the, the bright ultraviolet light of education. Um, and that's why it hurts a lot of people when they say, well, I know I'm not racist and they really mean it. Or they say, I had no idea because it's just in their way of life. You're not meant to see it. Now, this reaction uh, to George Floyd's murder certainly supports everything that you said in Kira, everything up until this point. And we have some listeners and Facebook group reactions that I'd like to share. And I want to start with Carolyn Von Berg, who is white and from Colorado. And she said when she was asked how she was changed in the last year since the murder of George Floyd, she says, I don't shy away from discussing this huge issue with folks like before. This is a turning point from my comfy world. I'm aligned with the BLM movement outwardly and I feel the wrath from folks. Getting more awareness and perspective in this process. I've lost some friendships, 
but I've cemented others. I now make an effort to engage with kindness and openness with Black people like never before. I'll tell you, obviously she's been changed. Comfy World is right that when she describes her uh, kind of the bubble that a lot of white people live in, most white people have had a wake up call about how black African-Americans have been treated in this country. But, you know, Courtney, it's not just white folks who have changed this past year. So have some black African-American men. Here's what Richard King of Florida said when we asked what's different now a year after George Floyd's murder. And he said this, I am a conservative who is a huge supporter of law and order. I'm that guy who buys police officers meals without them knowing it in restaurants. I'm the guy who, when he sees a police officer, stops and thanks him for a job well done. Honestly, after George Floyd's murder, my entire attitude changed. I started thinking about the times I was pulled over near my home just for driving black. I think about how I notice how police will see me, and I feel as if I'm a suspect. This may not be what you expected, but George Floyd's death made me aware that I'm nothing special to the police who live in my neighborhood, that my buying their meals means nothing, that thanking them means nothing. I know the chief of police in my city, but there was no comment on the mishandling of the George Floyd arrest. How has his murder changed me? I am an angry black man and very suspicious of the legal system for us. I've changed significantly, however, because of why are they so angry? I am more aware of the black farmers I can help, the black online businesses I can support, the importance of stopping and start videotaping when you see a person of color being stopped by the police. This is long, but it's a condensed version of what I feel. Well, a lot of people who were uh, conservative or did not on the even African-Americans who weren't aware of systemic racism because they had done so well in their lives and are living the American dream. This was a wake up call, uh, just like Richard said in his his reaction that, you know, people who support law and order and don't get it confused. We need the police because there are bad people out there. Mm -hmm, But we also need the police and those in power to understand how we got here. So I'm glad that we at Why Are They So Angry can help, you know, open people's minds and teach them things that they did not learn in school. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I certainly understand, um, like I said, the anger and the rude awakening, but that's why we're here to help and guide you through that. Now, our next comment is from a white woman named Bernadette Hull from Wisconsin. And here is her reaction a year after George Floyd's killing. She says, I live near Minneapolis and our college student granddaughter participated in the peaceful marches immediately after. We all witnessed a murder performed with deliberate and belligerent impunity. It was enraging and appalling, life-changing. We knew from many other deaths that this was happening. George Floyd's death provided irrefutable proof as if we needed more how dangerous it is to be Black in the United States. This is our moment to demand radical change. We need to stand 
with and follow the lead of BLM and other organ organizers, including making donations. I've made phone calls to and have spoken with state and federal legislators demanding they reform law enforcement, fund community crisis services, support voting rights, and remove the structural impediment to a to full participation in banking, housing, education, and equal justice. Again, thank you for this learning forum. Well, you know what I like about Bernadette's comment is that she's taking action, and that's what we're all about. We we say it, it's not enough to see it. In other words, see systemic racism and say it, say that you've seen it, but you need to confront it. And she basically has taken on uh, the role of confronting by writing uh, to her legislators, by being involved in the, in the legislative action, by donating to causes, and that's how you get change. You can't just sit on the sidelines and say, uh, oh gosh, it's so terrible, as they say, clutching your pearls and being upset. You have to act. I also like that Bernadette appreciates uh, the why are they so angry process and what we're doing now as a learning forum, uh, because I'm convinced that learning and education are the first steps to addressing systemic racism. You can't fight what you don't know. Now, on April 20th, 2021, almost one year after George Floyd's death, the jury found former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin guilty on all the counts he faced over the death of Floyd, um, which came as a surprise to me because I wasn't expecting it. But the trial had been one of the most closely watched cases that I can remember in recent memory, and it set off a national reckoning on police violence and systemic racism even before the trial commenced, as we've been talking about it. And um, as we're recording this, sentencing is scheduled for late June 2021. So is it, uh, was it Yogi Berra who said it ain't over till it's over? So there's still another big step in all of this. Exactly. Now, the verdict was shocking. Again, I lived as a 10 year old during Rodney King. So and all the other uh, murders by cop of black and brown people. So I was expecting nothing. Um, so I will say that I am cautiously optimistic with the with the guilty verdict. Well, Courtney, I would say this. Your cautious optimism is appropriate. Even members of law enforcement are somewhat skeptical. After the murder conviction of Derek Chauvin, Ari Shapiro interviewed Black police officers around America in May 2021, asking what's changed and what hasn't in the year since George Floyd's death. Now, here's what former Los Angeles police officer Cheryl Dorsey said, quote, there have been a few, uh, there have been very few changes. And I think that's evidenced by what we continue to see occurring. I mean, even while all that was going on with the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, officers still don't seem to be able to control themselves and give pause when they decide to use deadly force. I am right with Cheryl Dorsey and her sentiments. We have seen several killings and shootings since then. And with the war on cops narrative still floating around and you see different slogans um, floating around, I think that some cops and some people might start looking for retaliation and not reform because they feel it's a threat. 
That may be the case, Courtney. Um, for example, on April 17, 2021, uh, the New York Times had an article that talked about police killings in America less than a year after George Floyd's murder. It stated that since testimony began in the Chauvin trial, at least 64 people died at the hands of law enforcement nationwide, with Black, African-American, and Latino people representing more than half of the dead, most under 30, and four were teenagers. The average was more than three killings a day. And that's not all the reporters found out. Since 2013, with a slight dip because of the pandemic, about 1,100 people have been killed each year by law enforcement officers, according to databases compiled by Mapping Police Violence, a research and advocacy group that examines all such type killings. Well, and we also have research that's been done at the uh, college and university level. Philip Stinson, who's a professor in this criminal justice program at Bowling Green State University, uh, he studies civil killing, civilian killings, I'm sorry, by members of law enforcement. And he said the most striking aspect of the statistics on lethal police force is how little the numbers have changed in the decade or two since researchers began to track them. Even as cell phone videos, body cams make it harder to hide human error and abuses of authority by law enforcement, that is when the police even uh, you know, turn on their body cams, and even when there's social media amplifying public outrage, get this, Courtney, only about 1.1% of the officers who kill civilians are charged with murder or manslaughter, according to Dr. Stenson. I am not surprised, sadly. Now, since the beginning of 2005, Dr. Stinson also said that 140 non-federal sworn law enforcement officers, such as police, deputy sheriffs, and state troopers, have been arrested on charges of murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting. Now, out of that 140 that were arrested, only 44 have been convicted of a crime resulting from that incident. In most cases, they were convicted for a lesser offense. That number ought to be shocking, Courtney, but it really isn't. Um, there's been a little bit of progress at the state level to enact police reforms that might change those conviction rates, though. For example, the state of Kentucky became the third state in the U.S. to enact a law limiting the use of no-knock police raids of the kind that killed Breonna Taylor in Louisville last year. And the state of Maryland adopted a legislation returning control of the Baltimore Police Department to the city of Baltimore. That's a move that's been seen likely to lead to community-oriented reforms. But National police reform legislation in the U.S. Congress is stalled. The Democratic-led U.S. House of Representatives has twice passed legislation titled the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Senate Republicans have blocked it. This bill was drafted by the Congressional Black Caucus after Floyd's death, and the bill would ban chokeholds like the one that killed Eric Gardner in New York City in 2014. The U.S. legislation also would impose a series of reforms and accountabilities on federal law enforcement and would condition future U.S. funding for state and local agencies on adoption of the same principles and policy. Well, if the feds can't get things done, local cities and municipalities are starting to take their 
own stand against police brutality. According to data collected by Campaign Zero, since the protests of 2020, 46 of the 100 largest cities adopted new policies against the use of chokeholds, strangleholds, and pressure point positions like the one that killed George Floyd. Another 13 cities are reviewing their policies in 20. Seven already had chokehold bans. Larger reforms such as shifting funding from police to social services, a step captured in the popular protest slogan, defund the police, however, have been harder to implement. Yes, yes. When it comes down to the money, Courtney, it gets tough. Now, efforts to redirect funding originally intended for police forces has met resistance. Right in t- here in Texas, where I live, it's an uphill battle. Austin, which is a city that's considered fairly uh, liberal, uh, and it's also the capital of Texas, it was the first a large U.S. city to attempt major structural reform by moving $150 million, or one-third of its police budget, to social services and alternative public safety programs. But the Republican governor has lined up Republican support in the Texas legislature to prevent Austin from moving forward with those budget cuts. And there are movements in Georgia, Missouri, Iowa and Florida to prevent these types of cuts as well. Now, if funding can't be cut, at least there are efforts to limit the protection police officers currently have when they hurt or kill citizens. For instance, Campaign Zero is working with Maryland, Louisiana, and Oregon to scale back state laws that limit police accountability for killings and other wrongdoings. And kind of to circle back to what um, our listener Bernadette said about writing to the legislature and getting involved in the uh, political process, All of these states, all of these local governments, cities and municipalities have elected officials. And I would say that's where you need to put the pressure. Now, perhaps the marching, protesting, the public outcry, it's having a limited success, but this is a tough nut to crack. As the old saying goes, nobody likes change except a baby in a wet diaper. So changing police and policing tactics that are firmly rooted in systemic racism is going to be difficult. Remember, police forces in this country began as slave catching patrols. So it's no wonder black African-Americans continue living under the threat of police abuse. Now on that note, we'll close with one last reaction to the George Floyd murder. When asked how she is different one year after he died, Paula Hawkins of Texas said this, prior to George Floyd's televised execution, I was more patient and tolerant of people who were fundamentally different. After being traumatized by the indifference and callousness and disdain for black men's lives, I have said no more. I will not be providing teachable moments. I will not be enlightening and informing anyone else. I will not be embracing a kumbaya attitude, no more. This is now about survival because I realize there is a war against black people. And although I have lived black my entire life, George Floyd's murder radicalized me to be a warrior for my people because sadly there is no we the people. It's us and them, them being Republicans 
and you can replace Republican with racist, Klan, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, politicians, oppressors, or overseers. It's all about semantics, and the words are synonyms. And on that note, we will bring this very special episode re-encapsulating, revisiting the death of George Floyd and how it's changed all of us um, in 365 days. That's that's as long as it's been. But if you miss us in between now and our next episode or want to learn more about systemic racism or contact us in any way via social media, you can contact us at our website, www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? And when you go there, leave us a message about how you've been changed by George Floyd's death. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.